Good morning. There we go. My name's Eric. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I am the worship director, and uh, every so often I preach a sermon here or there. So if you, if you came to hear Pastor Sam, I am so sorry to disappoint you, uh, but he's got lots of audio files online. So there's YouTube videos. You can, you can get online and, and hear him, and, and he'll be back with you next week. Um, you know, so um, yeah, stick around. Um, now, did everybody get a handout? If you didn't get a handout, raise your hand. You want a handout. You want a handout. So get a handout, and that way you can follow along. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into God's word and see what the Lord has for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Keep your hands up, by the way, until you get your handout. Okay, let's go back into prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Uh, Lord, we, we, we do want to abide in your presence. And Lord, it's sin that, that even as saved people, Father, our sin just practically will hinder our fellowship with you. Uh, Lord, help us to repent. And thank you for being long-suffering and faithful and merciful, Lord. Always willing to uh, forgive, Father, and to restore fellowship when it's been lost. Uh, pray for the message this morning that you give us hearts to receive what you would say and uh, willing hearts to obey, Lord, uh, that you would transform us for your glory. Have your way this morning. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the title of the message is Three Tests Carnal Christians Always Fail. Three Tests Carnal Christians Always Fail. Now the reason why we're talking about this subject this morning. You know, I just kind of kind of give you some background. In my experience, the people that do the most damage in ministry, the people that do that hurt the ministry the most, the people that hurt churches the most are the people within it. It's professing Christians. People that say they love the Lord and they're following the Lord. The problem is is that these people tend to be harder to spot because they know the language. And they generally find themselves on the right side of most issues. And so it's not always obvious that they're carnal. And what makes it even more difficult is that sometimes these people get promoted in ministry. And so you can find them in fairly significant positions, leadership positions, but deep down, they never really truly become Christ-like. Going to church and being a part of ministry is just a part, it's more an act of convenience. It's more a, something that they've included in their good lifestyle. But God has a way of revealing them. Because no matter how far they get, they always seem to fail in one of these three tests that we're going to talk about this morning. And it's important that we talk about this because... Every one of you, if you stay in ministry long enough, you will face these three tests. And in a room this big, I suspect some of you may be dealing with it right now. And what I like about these tests is that you can't be carnal and pass them. It's impossible. There's something about these tests that just gets to the core of who you are and how you function, and it reveals the truth. So the only way to pass these tests is to die to self. That's the only way to pass. There's no way to fake it. 
Now, how many of you know that sometimes outwardly capable leaders are not always spiritual? Sometimes outwardly capable leaders are not always spiritual. But God desires true spiritual leadership. And so he's devised these tests to reveal the reality of your spiritual maturity. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the life of one such leader in the Old Testament. We're going to consider Joab. How many of you know who Joab is? You're going to get to know him this morning. Okay. So let's start first with Joab's resume. So I'm going to tell you what I like about Joab, because for the most of this sermon, I'm going to be trashing Joab. So we're just going to start with the positive of what I like about Joab. Now, Joab was the general of King David's army. He was the general. He was a military leader, head chief leader of, of David's army. And his rise to fame was quite notable. Go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 4. So 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 4 says, so now this is when David is, 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 is getting on the throne and he's, he's trying to secure his kingdom, okay? So David gets to Jerusalem and all David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were and the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, thou shalt not come hither, Nevertheless, David took this, the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. Here's the key, verse 6. And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first and was chief. So Joab captures them, and he smites them. And there's something to be said about being ready. So he takes advantage of this opportunity, and he becomes the chief military leader, the general. And, you know, while we're in the neighborhood, this idea of being ready, some of you need to think about that. What is it going to take for you to be ready for the opportunities that God may put in your path? Finishing discipleship. I made a decision to go through shepherd school not knowing what God was calling me to. Shepherd school, for those of you that don't know, it's like our, it was a four-year Bible institute before we had LFBI, but, you know, similar curriculum. But I made the decision to do that long before I knew what God was calling me to because I wanted to be ready when called upon. So his rise to fame, Joab's rise to fame was quite notable. And he scored some impressive victories. Go over to 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9. So they're in a battle, 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9. When Joab saw that the front of the battle was against him before and behind, he chose of all the choice men of Israel and put them in array against the Syrians. So he sees the battles against them, and he doesn't give up. He makes a plan. Verse 10, and the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai, his brother, that he might put them in array against the children of Ammon. Verse 11, and he said, if the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then will I come and help thee. Verse 12, Joab knows how to motivate people and say the right things. Be of good courage and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God. And the Lord do what, that which seemeth good which seemeth him good. And Joab drew nigh and the people that were with him and to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And you can just continue to read about how this became an amazing victory for Joab. And then go on over to 2 Samuel. Uh, just go over to the next chapter, chapter 11. David knew that he could trust Joab to get the job done. You send Joab somewhere, people are going to die. And that's a good thing when you're a general and you're in a war. 
So 2 Samuel 11, and it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when the kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. And you can read on about how they ultimately destroyed and took Rabbah. So David knew that when he sent Joab, Joab was going to get the job done. Joab knew how to win. Actually, Joab has no military losses recorded in the Bible. Every battle you see him in, militarily, you see him winning. And he served in David's army until David died. And perhaps you can see yourself in Joab's story. You've won a few people to the Lord. You're in discipleship. You finished discipleship, leading a Bible study. You're being entrusted with a ministry initiative. You're good at your particular area of ministry. You've got a victory. You've got some victories under your belt. But the problem with Joab is that somewhere something goes very wrong. And the reason we know that is because when David, when David's dying and he's handing the kingdom to Solomon, and he, he gives Solomon a letter and he gives final instructions, his final instructions to Solomon about Joab are don't let Joab die in peace. That's what David has to say about Joab. Don't let him die in peace. Don't let him die a natural death. Punish him. And so it's amazing that a man with such an impressive military resume, impressive natural ability, and to see how much he helped King David, it's amazing to see that despite his accomplishments, David would summarize his life in that manner. And so what we find as we study Joab is that there were critical tests that Joab failed. Despite his military prowess, he never became the man of God that God was calling him to be. And so this is the key picture. Get this down. Joab pictures the outwardly capable but inwardly carnal Christian. Outwardly capable but inwardly carnal Christian. And so the reality is if you and I stay in ministry long enough, we're going to be tested in these same areas. It's guaranteed. Stick around long enough. You're going to take all three tests and no carnal Christian has ever passed them. So let's dive right in. Test number one, you will be offended. You will be offended. Go over to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Second Samuel chapter 2 and verse 18. Now in this story, uh, what we have, just to kind of give you the background, David is, 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 is over the king. He's over Israel now. But the house of Saul, which was Saul was his enemy, the house of Saul. Saul is dead, but uh, their forces are still active, okay? Um, and so there's still some warring going on. And so we pick it up. Uh, the, by the way, the general of Saul's armies was Abner. Abner was the general of Saul's army. So I just want you to get the background. Uh, now, what you see here, they're, they're out and there's this, there's a, there's this battle that was taking place. And, and so we pick it up in 18. And there were three sons of Zariah there, Joab and Abishai and Azawil. And Azawil was light of foot as a wild roe. And so you got Joab and his brothers here. And now Azawil, the youngest one, pursued after Abner. In, in verse 19, and in going, he turned not to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Azawel? And he said, I am. He answered, I am. Verse 21, and Abner said to him, Turn thee aside to the right hand or to the left and lay thee hold on one of the young men. 
and take thee his armor, but Azawa would not turn aside from following him. I love this moment because Abner's basically saying, look, son, go find somebody young that, that you know, go, you can have a small victory, but don't, don't come for me, right? So Abner knows, I will kill you, boy, um, if you, and, but he, Azawa's not listening. Right? Verse 23, howbeit he refused to turn aside, wherefore Abner with the hinder end of the spear smote him under the fifth rib that the spear came out behind him. Wow. Right? That spear. Okay, that's some power there. That the spear came out behind him and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Azawa fell down and died, uh, and died stood still. And so Joab's brother gets killed. And in seeing that, what we're going to find out as we continue to look at this is that Joab's response to this is to kill Abner. The only problem is Joab's killing of Abner is not justified. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Joab's killing of Abner is not justified, and we're going to understand why that is. But I just want to take a little time to talk about, because this gives us insight into the nature of the offense, because I just told you you're going to be offended in ministry. But here's how we know. Here's what it's going to be like. The nature of the offense. Number one, it's going to be personal. When you get offended, it's going to be personal. It's going to be either a direct attack on you or someone you care about. And in any case, you will be justifiably angry. Joab had a right to be angry. His brother's dead. It's definitely an offense. Number two, it will be painful. The very sight of the offending person is going to be a problem for you because of what they did to you. And then number three, it will be persistent. You might try to let it go. You might try to pray about it. But every time you do, you get angry again. Has everybody, anybody ever been there? I've been there. Where you're so mad at somebody. <laughs> like, all right, I'm going to do the biblical thing and pray for them. And you start praying. And next thing you know, you back over <laughs> upset again. I've been there. Okay. And what makes this particularly hard for Joab is that other people know about it. And they didn't do anything about it. No one's outraged the way Joab is. And he's not offered any type of consolation from King David that I read of. And much like Joab, you will be tempted to take things in your own hands. Now, if you use Joab's specific tactics of killing the offending person, we will put you out and send you to prison. Okay, just FYI. But what does Joab do? I want you to see what Joab does. Okay, so now go over to 2 Samuel chapter 3 so you can see how this unfolds. So now this is kind of the backstory. Abner, as general over Saul's armies, um, is still, Saul is dead, but he's dealing with Saul's sons now. And one of Saul's sons does something to Abner, makes Abner mad. And so Abner makes this decision, you know what? I'm going to give the kingdom to David. I'm just going to go ahead and just set this up so that David can be ruler over the entire kingdom. And so Abner makes a deal with David, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee to bring about all Israel unto thee. So Joab makes this, this deal, or sorry, Abner makes this deal with, with David. But then down in verse 23, Joab finds out about it. 
And when Joab and all the hosts that was with him were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he is gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came in unto thee. Why is it that thou hast sent him away, and he is quite gone? Thou knowest, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee, and to know thy going out and thy coming in, and to know all that thou doest. And so Joab makes a decision to kill Abner, and he kills Abner. Now David hears about him killing Abner, and you see that down in verse 28. And afterward, when David heard it, that Abner, that Joab had killed Abner, this is what David says. He said, and I and my, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there not fail from the house of Joab one that hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. So Joab, uh, David curses Joab. And so what I want you to understand is that biblically, Joab did not have a right to go after Abner. And, you know, you might make the case of, well, what about the, you know, the cities of refuge? And you can, you can talk about that. But the cities of refuge, that provision um, was in place during times of um, peace, not times of war. Not times of war. So those, those provisions don't apply. And even if, okay, even if you say, well, I think they do apply, when you look at the passage over in Numbers 35, verse 22, you don't have to go there, but in giving the, the provisions of how the cities of refuge works, uh, it says, but if he thrust him suddenly without enmity, or cast upon him anything without lying of weight, or with any stone wherewith a man may die, seeing him not, and cast it upon him that he die, and was not his enemy, neither sought his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the revenger of blood according to these judgments. At a bare minimum, at a bare minimum, Joab, this situation should have been taken before the congregation. At a bare minimum. But see, this gives us insight into what happens when people get offended, because when you get offended, you're only interested in talking to the people that agree with you. That's why the passage says that Joab kept it from David. He wasn't interested in following the process that God had laid out. And sometimes you can be so offended that you're not even really willing to be told that you're viewing it wrong. You're viewing it wrong. All Joab knows is he's going to kill the man that killed his brother. Now, the problem with that is how do you ever find peace if it's okay to go ahead and kill someone else, right? Because someone in your family was killed, right? If you've got these two people that are warring, these two countries, and you call peace, how do you truly achieve peace if everybody still gets to seek revenge for the last person that was killed? Do you see that? At some point, it has to stop, and there has to be peace. So let me give you the parallel, because I want you and I to get this. Just like Joab didn't have the right to kill Abner, you don't have the right to assassinate the character of the person that offended you. You don't have the right to pay that person back. See, it's exactly these types of offenses that come, and the only thing that you can do really is forgive the person. And it would have been impossible for Joab to forgive apart from a real relationship with a loving and merciful God. And though this gives us our first key point, only those who have an intimate relationship with the Savior who forgave their sins could offer such forgiveness to someone else. So you can't give what you don't have. And since you, if you haven't experienced forgiveness, then how do you give it? 
And that's why this test is essential to the Christian faith. I get it. It's hard to forgive someone that hurt you. But the question is, since you have been forgiven, will you forgive? And if your answer is no, I can't forgive that person. I can't let it go because of what they did to me. Then there's only two possibilities. Number one, you're not saved. You haven't experienced forgiveness. Number two, you're saved and you're still a carnal Christian. You've not learned what it means to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. Over in 2 Corinthians, I want you to hear what Paul told to the Corinthians. So there was a guy in, in, in 1 Corinthians that was sleeping with his father's wife, and they have to exercise church discipline, and they have to put this man out of the church. But this man repents. And so now it's time to forgive and restore him. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it, here's the key, in the person of Christ. I know it's hard to forgive, but in the person of Christ, that's what makes it possible. Verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And so this gives us key point number two. Satan gets the advantage over you when you refuse to forgive. He gets the advantage over you when you refuse to forgive. So holding a grudge, being bitter, envious, all of those things will do significant damage to your testimony. And likewise, when you determine to forgive the one that offended you, you show the reality that Christ is your Lord. That Christ is dwelling in you. Because he enables you to do that. So that's test number one. You're going to be offended. Test number two. You will be overruled. You will be overruled. And so what we see in 2 Samuel is that King David has a plan. His goal is to, 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 to heal the kingdom and bring about unity. And so 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21, in the same story, it says, And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, that thou mayest reign over all Israel, all, reign over all that thine heart desireth. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So this was David's decision to make, and David makes a decision. He makes this league with Abner, to, and this is to bring about peace between these, these, these two warring houses. And it's implied that Joab is overruled. We understand that from verse 26, because it says, And when Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Sirah, but David knew it not. Right, so now he's operating to undermine what David has done. But this was David's plan. Now, by the way, this gives us some insight into how to make good decisions. Anytime you have to hide your decision from your boss, from the person above you, you're probably making a bad decision. I've seen this in the business world as well as, as, as in ministry. You know, when you make decisions, you make decisions that you know will hold up under scrutiny. If I had to be in a courtroom and explain why I did this, I want to be able to do that without shame. If, I, if it's on the national news, I want to be able to explain why I did what I did without shame. And if you're, if you're having to hide a decision, you already know you're probably making the wrong decision. And so Joab gets overruled. 
We're not going with Joab's strategy. We're going with David's strategy. David wants to make a league with Abner, and he makes that decision to do that. So now this gives us insight into the nature of you being overruled. Number one, it will be a subject about which you are most passionate about when you get overruled. Joab was passionate. He believed David was making a poor choice. He meant it with every fiber of his being. And this makes it all the harder, right? When you lay your case out before somebody, right? About what you want. You lay your case out and you're passionate about it and you deliver it with passion and then that person looks at you and says, no, we're not doing it that way. We're not doing it that way. It's hard to hear. You've been overruled. Number two, it will be a subject that you are 100% convinced you know the best way. You think you've got it figured out. How come anybody else doesn't see it that way? And the reason you're convinced, and this will be number three, is because it will be a subject where you will have conventional wisdom on your side. Don't miss that. When Joab walked in there to talk to David, what Joab told David was actually typically true. It makes sense. It fits conventional wisdom. Under any other circumstances, it'd be reasonable to say, yeah, Abner's coming in here to deceive you. He's coming in here to spy out your house. He doesn't actually want to make a pact with you. That fits conventional wisdom. The only problem is Joab doesn't actually have all the details, does he? He doesn't actually have all the details. So Abner was making a legitimate offer. And so could it be that the thing that you are so passionate about, could it be that you don't have all the details? And the truth is, Joab did not have to have all the details. All he had to do was follow the instructions he was given. All he had to do was carry out his role. But then number four, it will be a subject that you have predetermined that you're going to do something if you don't get your way. And you know what I'm talking about. You're on that, you, well, I'm going to go talk to her, I'm going to go talk to him, and if they don't do this, it's going to be some problems. I'm going to do this. It's going to be some smoke in the city. Do people still say that? No. <laughs> That's bad. It's going to be some ruckus in the house if they don't do it. Thank you, Van. So let's talk about how this shows up in ministry. This isn't in your notes, but I just want to make this practical for you. Being overruled happens in ministry, okay? Let me just give you a few examples of how this shows up. Your pet doctrine that nobody else agrees with. And all you want to do is show everybody how right you are. And if we would just see it your way, then righteousness could begin. And so you make your case to the pastors, and no one agrees with you. So you get overruled. Let me tell you something, and this is so important. How you respond to getting overruled speaks volumes about your maturity level. Speaks volumes about your maturity level. So do you take every opportunity because you got overruled on this doctrinal issue to undermine your pastors and leaders and criticize them at every turn? If that's you, you're carnal. You're carnal. The other way that this will manifest itself is in how a person that's doing wrong is handled. 
You don't like how this person was handled. Great example would be the one we just talked about over in 1 Corinthians, that guy that was sleeping with his father's wife. Right? Paul steps in and Paul's like, put the guy out. Put him out. And we as a church, we've had to exercise church discipline before. We don't like to do it, but we've had to do it. Not everybody agrees that it should happen that way. Well, I just think you're being too harsh. I just think you should have done it this way. I think you should have done it this way. Okay, so you disagree. Now what? Do you get to cause a rebellion because you got overruled and we handled it differently from how you think it should have been handled? Or you disagree with the ministry strategy? Could be anything, but get this down and this is key point number three. God makes sure that at some point everybody gets overruled in ministry so you can learn that it's ultimately not about you. Everybody gets to be overruled. Because God doesn't need your opinion and your perspective to accomplish his mission. He doesn't. So this is what I think. I think being overruled is a rite of passage. It happens. Welcome to the club of not getting your way. And I suspect that God allows us and our good ideas to be overruled for several reasons. These aren't in your notes, but you can just listen. The first reason I think God allows us to be overruled is that God allows you to be overruled to teach you that there is a structure and you have the privilege to submit to it. To teach you that there is a structure and you have the privilege to submit to it. Please don't forget that. It's a privilege to be in ministry. I consider it a privilege to be at this church. There's no place I'd rather be. But then he also does it to humble us. Everything doesn't have to be done your way. It doesn't have to be done my way. But this is the age of Laodicea, the rights of the people. You know, I have a right to be heard. It takes discernment to know when to remain silent. It takes discernment to know when to remain silent. But then God allows us to be overruled. Here's another reason. He does it to make us wiser. Because not everything that you thought would work better actually worked better. And I have learned this in ministry and in business, okay? I work in business and I can remember some decisions where I'm like, oh no, that's never gonna work. It's never gonna work. It's gonna fail. Two months later, it's working great. I'm like, Okay, it worked. I'm just going to be quiet now. But sometimes you, you, don't, you don't have to have the right answer, right? Like it, it's, some people know better than you. And so it's okay to be overruled. Here's something I've observed. Typically, some of the most frustrated people are the people who always have to be heard. Those are some of the most frustrated people. They have to be heard on everything. They're always upset when people don't agree with them. Imagine that, different people having different opinions. Sometimes it's better to disagree and just keep your disagreement to yourself. And so key point number four, the only way you can pass this test is by trusting God to be greater than your passionate perspective. God is greater than your passionate perspective. If that pet doctrine is so critical, then can you trust God to reveal it in his time? Or does it have to be right now on your schedule? If leadership didn't handle a situation to your liking, can you trust God to deal with his leaders? 
You know, as I read the Bible, what I find is that God deals with his leaders. And typically, if there's a delay, that means the punishment is all the worse. Because the passage of time does not minimize the punishment in God's eyes, right? So if there's a delay, that just means when it does come, it's going to be pretty bad. So we don't get to cause a rebellion. Consider this. Can you trust God to overrule the people that you don't have the authority to overrule? That's the real question. Who do you think is ultimately in charge? If you believe God is in charge, then you can put it in God's hands and allow him to deal with his people in his time. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Is God in control or isn't he? And if he is, you can trust him with being overruled. It doesn't have to sink the ship for you. So we've talked about being offended. We've talked about being overruled. Let's look at the last one, and this one's a doozy. You will be overlooked. You will be overlooked. Now, what we see is as time progresses in Joab's life, he continues to be problematic for King David. He does continue to serve as David's general. And even that, let me just stop and say, second, first and second Samuel, that's where it's at. I mean, there are so many leadership lessons throughout that whole thing because you have to ask, okay, so clearly Joab should have been demoted on one hand, but then on the other hand, Joab kind of had some of David's dirt too, right? So that whole thing with Bathsheba and Joab and what his role in that. But then Joab militarily was impressive, right? He was hard to replace, I think, in that, in that regard. Um, and I mean, so it's just amazing when you look at all the leadership principles. Who should have been David's number two? It should have been Jonathan. But then Jonathan, in the end, was in the wrong battle. And so being in the wrong battle and with the wrong loyalties cost Jonathan. I think Jonathan would have been a great number two for David, but because his heart was towards David. So when we get, go over to 2 Samuel 15, there's so much there. What we see is that one of David's sons, Absalom, mounts a rebellion against David, okay? And I want you to get the story so you can understand how this impacts Joab. So 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of the, one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice." And it was so that when any man came nigh unto him to do him obedience, that he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So what ends up happening is uh, Absalom mounts this rebellion where David's on the run for his life. And this is towards the end of David's life. So it's, it's, David is in mid-60s uh, when all of this is, is, is happening. Now what happens when Absalom takes over the throne briefly, he appoints a general. Amasa is the name of the general. Okay, you gotta remember that because then this is all gonna make sense. He appoints Amasa. Now ultimately, Absalom is killed. 
Joab kills Absalom, and I don't even have time to cover that story, but that's one that you can just read and enjoy at a later time. So now the key is David's now got to put the kingdom back together yet again, right? The kingdom's been divided. Absalom was uh, trying to mount a, a rebellion. And so now it's time for David to put the kingdom back together. And so over in 2 Samuel 19, verse 12, David talking to the people says, ye are my brother and ye are my bones and my flesh. Wherefore then are ye last to bring back the king? And here it is. Say ye to Amasa, art thou not of my bone and of my flesh? God, God do so to me and more also if thou be not captain of the host before me continually in the room of Joab. Now this is David's heart, verse 14. And he bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word unto the king. Uh, return thou and all thy servants. So what ends up happening here is effectively Joab gets a demotion, right? David offers this position to Amasa, and Joab now is demoted. Now there's a lot to learn from here in terms of stepping into a fractured kingdom or company or, and trying to put it back together, but we saw David's heart. Joab is effectively demoted. Now for you, we're talking about being overlooked. It might not be that you're demoted, but it could be that someone else is chosen for the thing that you thought you deserved. Someone gets to disciple the person you thought you wanted to disciple. Someone gets picked to, be, to lead the Bible study you thought you wanted to lead. Someone gets picked to, to lead the ministry initiative that you thought should be you. Either way, the net effect is the same. You feel like you've been overlooked. So let's talk about the nature of being overlooked. How does that feel? Number one, you're actually more qualified than the person selected, or at least you think so, right? That's why it's hard to deal with being overlooked, is you think you're more qualified. Now, in Amasa's case, in Joab's case, I'm going to go ahead and say Joab was more qualified, okay? Uh, but, and you can see that. It's interesting. Over in, in 2 Samuel 20, David... Uh, there's another rebellion that takes place. David's got all these rebellions he's got to deal with. So there's another rebellion that takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Sheba mounts a rebellion. David tells Amasa, go. You have three days to get ready, get the troops ready. Three days expire, Amasa's not ready. Amasa's still tarrying, trying to get the troops together, okay? Uh, and so Amasa just wasn't as, it doesn't seem like he was as capable as Joab. Like, when it came time to kill people, Joab was prompt, right? <laughs> You didn't have to wait on Joab. Joab was ready, willing, and able <laughs> to get it done, right? Uh, and so I could see why this would be a problem for Joab. Number two, you've accomplished more than the other person. If anyone could make a case for look at what I've done for this kingdom, it was Joab. Look at all I've accomplished. And then what's amazing if you've ever felt overlooked, then you've probably had this thought. You're being overused despite being overlooked. You're being overused despite being overlooked. And so what happens, Amasa's not ready to go and put down this rebellion by Sheba. And so David, now David needs to save face because he did just demote Joab. So he can't really go and say, Joab, I need you to go. So he's, David's smart about it. He sends Abishai, his brother, knowing that Joab's going to tag along. Right? Like that's just, David had to know Joab was going to tag along. And so that's what stings about being overlooked. Okay, so you don't want me in the position, but you're okay to still use me. And if you've ever been overlooked, you've thought it. So you didn't get selected for the thing you wanted. 
doesn't feel like you're getting your due. But now the question is, because we've talked about this on the first two, the question is, how are you going to respond to that? Do you get upset and take your toys and go home? Or do you make a decision to be content with the role that you have and purpose to do that role heartily as unto the Lord? People get bent out of shape when they don't feel like they're getting their due. But key point number five is this. The only person that can keep you from the roles and opportunities that God has for you is you. So here's what that really means. If you don't have that position and opportunity, it's because God doesn't want you to have it yet. And I know that hurts to hear, but that's the truth. God hasn't done it. You know, God's not in heaven going, oh, man, I really think they should have picked Mario to lead the Bible study. And now that they didn't pick him, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. God's not in heaven saying that. How many of you know this? If God wants you in a role, when God's ready for you to have something, it happens, right? When God is ready for you to do something, it happens. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. This matter is by the decree of the watchers. And the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. God is in control even when you feel like you've been overlooked. And so when he's ready for you to do something, there's nothing anybody in this world can do to shut it down when God is ready for you to do it. So here's the right response to being overlooked. First thing you need to do is you need to make your case before the one who's actually in control. You bring that to the Lord in prayer. And then the second thing you need to do is you need to purpose to wait on him and do his will in his time. So that requires patience. It's not in your outline, but I'm just giving it to you. So here it is, key point number six. Mature Christians don't get bent out of shape over being overlooked because they trust God to do his will, his way, in his time. Psalm 75, verse 6, for promotion cometh neither from east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. I can tell you a story about me. I was, um, this is back when I was a regional director for a photography company, and I hated my job. Anybody ever been there? I hated my job. Okay. Um, and I, was, I didn't like the way I was being treated, and I was ready to go. So of course, I was working my career builder, because that was the thing back then. It wasn't Indeed, it was career builder. Now, career builder is lame today. I don't know if you've been on it, but Indeed.com will give you better results. Anyway, uh, but so I, was, I did not like my job, and so I'm like, I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them. I'm going to get me another job. I had my, my, my resignation. I just, it was ready. All I needed was to get the job, OK? So I get this opportunity with Avon, and, and I start interviewing, and it's going well. I mean, they flew me to New York. I interviewed with the senior vice president of Avon. And they flew me to Texas, and I have all these interviews, and they just loved me. And I just know I'm going to get that phone call, and I'm going to get that job, and I can't wait. Because you know how you get your mouth set on something like when you're getting ready to eat, and you get, you're, just, you're ready. So my life was ready for this because once I got this job, I was going to buy this house. I'd already been talking to a realtor. Like, I had got it all set up. The only thing that needed to happen was I needed this phone call to say, okay, you start on this day. 
And I remember where I was, I remember where I was standing, I remember what I was doing when I got that phone call. They didn't choose me. They chose someone else. And I had to stay at that job for another two years. And so I had to make a decision in that moment. I'm either going to throw a hissy fit and, and have a tantrum, or I can decide to, to just do well at what I'm doing and, and be content and enjoy it, or I can be miserable. Because ultimately, it's up to the Lord. God controls it. God didn't want it. And so I made the decision to just, to just put my head down and do my work and be content, be glad to have a job, right? But now that we've looked at these, these, these tests, right, we, we talked about being offended, we talked about being overruled, and we talked about being overlooked, and we're all going to have to deal with that. I want you to see two more things, two more things real quick. The first thing is that carnal Christians can be a great frustration to their leaders. They really can. Look at what David had to say. When David found out that, that Joab had killed Abner, in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 39, he says, this is David, he says, I am this day weak, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. I don't want to be a source of great frustration for my leaders and my pastors because I can't be mature enough to accept not getting my way. And that's what happens. And you know, this isn't a business, okay? If it was a business and someone's acting silly, you just fire them, okay? That's just, this is a family, right? So we don't just fire people. We don't just put people out. We forbear and we pray for people and we fast for them. But some of the hardest times are dealing with carnal Christians that can't accept not getting their way. And at the end of David's life, this is what David, this is how David summarizes Joab's life. When, he's, when David's giving the kingdom to Solomon, he writes Solomon a letter. This is what he has to say about Joab. 1 Kings 2.5, moreover thou knowest also what Joab the son of Zariah did to me and what he did to the two captains of the host of Israel unto Abner the son of Ner and unto Amasa the son of Jether whom he slew and shed the blood of war in peace and put the blood of war upon his girdle that was about his loins and in his shoes that were on his feet. Verse six, do therefore according to thy wisdom and let not his forehead go down to the grave in peace. Don't let him die a natural death. And so David's final conclusion on Joab's life is that the net effect was Joab was a liability. The net effect of Joab's life was that he was a liability. Despite his great accomplishments, despite his natural ability, he, his, the net effect was that he was a liability. Key point number seven, the final analysis for carnal Christians is that they will suffer great loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Your strengths and abilities won't be remembered. Your accomplishments won't be remembered. Only that you wreaked havoc and sowed destruction in the body of Christ because you couldn't get your way. Every head bowed and every eye closed. We'll go ahead and have the worship leaders come up, worship team. And I just want to ask a few questions. I want to ask you a few questions. Is there anybody here that would say, and I'm feeling like I don't even know who God is. 
I don't even know if I have a relationship with God, the God that you're talking about, the God that forgives. Please pray for me. If that's you, I want to pray for you. Raise your hand. Does anybody would say, I don't know that I have a relationship with God. Please pray for me. I want to pray for you. Okay, is there anybody that would say, pray for me? I'm struggling in one of these areas. I've been offended, or I've been overruled, or I'm feeling overlooked. I see your hands. I see your hands. Please pray for me. If anybody would say, I see your hands. I see your hands. I see your hands. I see your hands. I'm struggling in one of these areas. Please pray for me. You know, outside, it, apart from Christ, it's, a pos- it's impossible to, to let go of offenses. But the beauty is, because of the sacrifice of Christ and his forgiveness that he offers to us, he enables to do that which is impossible in our flesh. And it just requires a willingness to yield. And so I'm going to pray for you as the... Um, I'm going to pray for you, and then as we sing, you have an opportunity to come forward and let somebody pray with you. Heavenly Father, Lord, you see the hands that are raised, and in a room this big, Lord, I suspect that there are people here that don't even know you. And I pray if that's the case, Lord, that they would not leave until they come to know you in the pardon of their sins, that they would talk to someone about what it means to, to know that you have eternal life. And then, Lord, I pray for those hands that are raised. And um, I know it's hard to feel these things. I know it's hard to feel offended. But, Lord, um, by the power of Christ, you've enabled us to extend love and peace. Uh, These things that in our flesh we can't do. And so I pray um, for the hearts of those that raise their hands, Lord, that they would be careful to make right whatever it is that they have uh, that they need to surrender to you. And so have your way. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.